Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Uh, welcome to this meeting uh, and this session on Newcomers Welcome. Without help, it was too much for us. We're glad you're all here. My name is Gary, and I am a sexaholic. I'll be your leader for this session. Thank you. Uh, in the spirit of the fifth tradition, to carry this message, this session will be recorded. The recorder will not be turned Something was very, very different. Today, I believe that that was me actually experiencing for the very first time in my life the effects of my brain beginning to rewire itself as a direct result of deep recovery and a commitment to this program. Healing. And for me, it was bizarre and strange and really frustrating and wonderful and freeing and still frustrating, but something I'm ultimately amazed that happened. The next morning, as soon as my husband woke up, I told him about the slip, and also I told my sponsor and program friends, also very different for me than what had happened in the past. I processed through it and grieved it and celebrated new learnings from it. I put my filters right back on my computer, and I haven't gone back since. What's interesting is that it didn't stay with me. A slip didn't become a relapse that time. <laughs> A slip didn't become something that I constantly obsessed about. What's amazing is that erotic recall failed after that. Um, and that had never happened for me either. Unfortunately, I'm very visual and I have a memory for pictures. But that time it didn't work. And daily, every day, before then and since, I thank God, my higher power, whom I now call God, and I get up in the morning, and the first thing I do is I say the, my version of the third and seventh step prayers. And I say a few other prayers, too, including the serenity prayer. And I thank God that I'm not in the same place today that I used to be. And I'm not in denial, not nearly as much as I used to be. And I don't ever have to do this alone. Today, I actually feel safe enough to reach out to men and women in this program and to call them friends, some of them brothers and sisters, and reach out to them when I feel ashamed or when I feel afraid, and to answer the phone when they call me. There's something I didn't do before. I believe that this program saved my life. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I didn't drop it. Hey, my name's Jim. I'm grateful to be a sexaholic. Hi, Jim. <coughs> uh, my sobriety date is September the 23rd, 2000. Um, my past forms of acting out, 
um, fantasy, masturbation, uh, dependency relationships, promiscuity. Um, my my favorite thing, my drug of choice is juggling multiple relationships with everybody else not knowing what's going on and me thinking I know what's going on. Um, the um, I think my earliest memory of being a sexaholic was like when I was probably four, three or four, something like that. And I remember uh, having a romantic fantasy about some older girl, maybe she was 10 or something. And um, and fantasy was my way of, became very quickly my way of dealing with the stress of the, my life. Um, and I don't know, that stress may have been induced by the people that in my family or I don't even know, you know, maybe, maybe it was just uh, self-imposed. But um, fantasy, it didn't matter if it was heroic fantasy, maybe I'd be Superman or Batman, or if it was romantic fantasy and, oh, you know, things are going to be wonderful and we're going to be prom, prom king and queen or whatever, you know, or, or um, revenge fantasy, you know, I'll get even. And, um, and fantasy was my drug for, for years. And, um, you know, even to the point of uh, reading novels and stuff, I, I couldn't see very well when I was a little kid, and nobody knew why until I was about, I don't know, seven or eight, I got glasses, and, but I could see up close, and so I'd read, and I'd read, and I'd read, and I'd read. Um, but it was all fiction. And, but it was, to me, it was all real. Um, when I learned to masturbate, I really thought that that was paradise. You know, I thought well, I couldn't understand why anybody would do anything else. But I also knew that it was wrong, and that I and and you know, as as much as I wanted to do it and wanted to start it, I also wanted to stop it, and I could never stop it. And um, and the same thing happened when I um, first had sex with a woman. It was. Um, just this magic experience, you know, I couldn't understand why people went to work or went to school or, I mean, why not, you know, why do anything else? And um, and yet I was terrified of women as a teenager. Uh, I, I, I was terrified of rejection or judgment or all the things that I did to myself. So, um, you know, I would uh, groom and cultivate relationships and then take somebody hostage or maybe it was a mutual hostage taking and these dependency relationships would last as long as I could make them last, and they'd be sexualized, and as soon as I could make them sexual, and um, then when they when they die, either I would see it going down the tubes, and I'd set up the next relationship, or I would be totally lost because I had become a chameleon. I'd become whatever you needed so that you wouldn't leave me, and so then I'd go into deep depressions between relationships, unless I saw them coming, and I could skip out and have it set up the next time. Um, during all those relationships, I still masturbated. Number one never went away. So, so it was sort of this gradation from fantasy to masturbation to dependency relationships along with masturbation. Um, it eventually uh, included a marriage and, um, and then um, adultery. So sex outside the marriage, still masturbation all the time. And there was this um, increasing... Uh, sort of severity of the disease. And eventually it was multiple partners outside the marriage and in my professional practice. And um, eventually, you know, there was about oh, four or five years before this came, became public, um, one of these partners was out of town for the weekend and brought home a um, trade publication about sex addiction that you would recognize if I mentioned the name and author. And um, 
gave it to me and thought I ought to read it. So I read it really fast because I didn't want it around the house. And then I gave it to another client of mine who I knew really needed it because I didn't really need it. And um, that's significant because four or five years later when one of their husbands called me and said that his wife had confessed that she'd been having an affair with me, um, and I admitted it the first time and I had a really confused response myself to that admission. Um, it was relief. It was the first time I'd ever admitted any of this to anybody, including you know the therapist, multiple therapists that I'd used over 12 or 15 years that hadn't been able to, to help. Of course, they didn't really know what was going on, but they couldn't help. Um, you know, my wife and I had been in um, couples therapy for probably a dozen years. And, you know, as near as we could see, we were going to be there forever and never really know why and still be miserable. Um, anyway, uh, the night that I was confronted and I admitted it, I remembered that book from four or five years earlier and thought, oh, my God, I'm a sex addict. And I had, you know, that was a, that was a, a realization for me. And so um, later that week, I told the therapist what I was. And fortunately, he was familiar with uh, 12-step recovery, and he directed me in the right way. It took about, I don't know, six or eight weeks to find a meeting where I lived back then. Um, but he read me the first few steps, first three steps, I think, uh, for some other program. And, um, you know, I had been trying to manage this and stop it for Mm, probably 40 years. And um, and I'd always been unsuccessful. I mean, all of, <clears throat> every every incident with clients at work, uh, every time that I was um, uh, cheating on my wife, every time that I was masturbating, I, I felt guilty. I felt terrible. And I couldn't stop. I was unable to stop. Um, but I would plan. I would try to figure out how I was going to stop. I would, you know, read this book, use this technique, da, 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 da. It was constantly in my mind. And the whole idea that I was powerless was this completely new awareness. It never had occurred to me that maybe this just wasn't my job. I was just not the one that was supposed to manage this. And, and so that whole idea of step one, that I'm powerless and my life's unmanageable, and I, it was clear that my life was unmanageable, especially as this thing went public and I lost my uh, professional license and you know, dealt with some um, civil lawsuits over the next couple of years and, uh, you know, was unemployed. Um, but, you know, was front page news and was on the television, uh, you know, news. And, and um, the public shame really rubbed in that my life was unmanageable. There was no doubt. And um, yet this idea that I was powerless was a, a huge, I mean, I got power by being powerless, by letting go. And um, and I didn't understand it at all, but um, but as I stopped trying to manage it, and then as I found meetings, and began to read the literature and uh, shared with other people, I began to be able to not do it. I began to be able to stay sober. Didn't make any sense to me at all, but I was willing to go with it. It was better than than what was going on. And with <clears throat> with my case being so public and it being very difficult in my life, I was motivated to to seek recovery. Um, but I still, you know, wasn't really, uh, you know, nobody in the rooms was really where I was, was staying sober, and nobody in the rooms had ever worked the steps, and nobody in the rooms had ever had a sponsor. So I was kind of, 
you know, I, I began to read the literature, and again, you know, my mind has always been my solution. So I began to work the steps myself. I wrote out my first step. I wrote out my second step. I wrote out my third step. wrote my fourth step. I got to step five, and now I was screwed because I needed somebody else to talk to about this. So, <laughs> so I found somebody and began to talk with him, and he was um, he had a sponsor in another program, and um, you know, I started reading him this stuff. And uh, after a couple hours of it, um, he came back the next time that we were going to read, and he said he checked with his sponsor, and he said that his sponsor said it really sounded more like a first step. So here I'd wasted two or three months working the steps by myself because it turns out that without help, it's too much for us, you know, and and I needed to find help. And um, it, it didn't matter that I'd memorized the books. It didn't matter that I'd you know, going on and on and on, and, and, uh, and that I'd been very successful in complicated endeavors before that, what I needed was help. I couldn't do this by myself. Um, sponsorship, it's pretty good stuff, you know. I, I've spent a lot of money on therapists. Sponsorship is way better <laughs> for me in my life, in my experience, and it's free. Um, I mean, you, you pay it forward, you don't pay it backward, you know. <laughs> so, um, so you know, as I as I began to work the steps with a sponsor, my life is so different now. I mean, I you know, I'm a little over nine years sober. That's I, I, that's unimaginable. I, I can't do that. That's clear evidence that there is some power greater than ourselves that that will restore us to some kind of sanity. If you call what I've got now sanity, that's probably kind of a stretch because I'm I'm a little goofy, but um, but it's a lot better than I used to be. Oh my gosh, I'm really not recognizable to the guy that walked into these rooms 11 years ago. I'm just I'm just not uh, not to myself, not to my family, um, not to any of the people I knew, not to the people I make amends to. You know, I'm not the same guy anymore, and that's the that's the grace of um, dealing with people like you. So. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being in my recovery. And uh, please come up and tell us your step one story. As the first step says, we are powerless over lust. And as our title says, without help, it was too much for us. So you are the we as our we, and we are the us as are you. So the microphone is available for either questions or comments. We'll see what kind of response there is. Probably we should try to keep it to two to three minutes so that everybody has a chance to share. And uh, if you just want to sort of cheer up over here, that'll be great. So the floor is open. Hi, my name is Priscilla, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic, and uh, 16 years ago I could never imagine having said that because uh, I walked into a room full of men and think it's all their fault that I'm here. Um, but saying today that I'm powerless, I think one of y'all said it, that is being able to give me more power than I can ever imagine because um, a few years ago I could never admit that I had made the most embarrassing mistake um, for the day, I won't say for my life, from the day of having talked with a very nice 
young woman and having emailed a very nice young woman and in my mind thought I was talking with a different young woman in the program. And um, I am excited to um, officially meet the Lori that I've been talking with via phone and, and via email. Um, you know, and before I could never have said that without thinking, they're going to think I'm just so stupid and, you know, all those old messages coming to my head because I can't control what you think. You might think that, but, you know, hey, have at it. Um, that's all I can say. But this program and the ability to know that um, I couldn't have stopped, no matter how hard I tried, have stopped the craziness. Because, um, boy, I sure did try. Um, went to church, said, I'll never do this again. Please, God. You know, and... Um, uh, diseases didn't stop me, you know, I could just go on and on with the problem, but we all know what the problem is. Um, the reality is, thanks to the, um, to originally to those men in those rooms, uh, I hear people go, I can't go to a meeting with men. It's like, boy, I'd be dead without the men in those rooms. Um, and so, and we were just talking earlier, um, and why I can say I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic is, that I would never have had the opportunity to meet the incredible people that are in my life today. Um, I never would have had a chance to meet all the young people that are coming in the program um, and all the people from around the world. So I'm eternally grateful that today um, I can say that I'm powerless over lust and my life had become unmanageable and unless I keep coming back, it will go back to being unmanageable. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Hi, my name is Leslie. I'm a sex addict. Hi. Um, for me, this is the most painful uh, program that I've ever experienced in my life. This program isolated me from my life. I lost, I think, everything because I was so selfish, so consumed about the fix, uh, thinking the next one would be better, that I became a workaholic because when I went to work, I didn't think. And I just worked and worked and worked and obsessed in my mind about what I was going to do when I left work. I didn't want anyone in my home. I isolated my family. I isolated my son. My son has the consequence of this disease. I was abusive to my husband. I kicked him out three times. We're separated now. And to regain trust um, is not that easy. I don't know if I married him for the wrong reason. I met him when I, I got sober very young in my early 20s, and we met in Alcoholics Anonymous. And to be honest with you, I met him because he was a nice Jewish guy, and he had, had a nice watch and nice shoes. But he turned out to be a really nice guy still with nice shoes and a nice watch and all this, whatever. But um, 
I never dated someone. He was like obsessed with me. And I never had a guy like that obsessed with me. I was like living a life of uh, like transvestites, prostitution. Um, and, and after I got sober um, in AA, my life drastically changed in the sense of I, God, I feel like God always put a hedge around my life. And he protected me. I should have been dead millions of times from all the abuse and disgrace that I allowed people to do to me. Even though I, uh, it doesn't matter where you come from, I came from a very well-to-do um, Jewish neighborhood. But this disease took me to the pit of hell, literally took me as low down the scale as anyone could go. Um, and it's only by the grace of God that he lifted me up and gave me a career that I excelled in, that he anointed me in. However, I still couldn't stop the addiction, which I lost most of my friends. And right now, I don't really have too many friends except for um, the pe women I'm meeting on the phone meeting. And it looks like I have a lot of friends because it's, it, my outsides don't match my insides. I'm in, a, I'm in a, um, a career which is very desirable and everyone wants what I have, but it doesn't help my feeling of emptiness, loneliness, fearfulness, emptiness, like I don't fit in, I don't belong. This is how I feel even here. I'm really scared. I feel like... Isolated. I'm really afraid to be here. Um, I can act self-confident, but my ends don't feel self-confident. And I need to um, just have faith. I do have faith in God. I am so grateful to God because he, he, he took me out of this unscathed. I don't have any, like, scars. I don't have any. I'm not deformed. I'm not disfigured. I wasn't killed. You know, I remember the police calling my mother, saying the girls were found, you know, homicide, killed. Is that your daughter, you know? And my, and my sister had to move out of New York City. She couldn't live there anymore. I had to DT. I was just so crazy. So it's amazing and a miracle that I was able to give birth to a son because of the abuse that my body went through from this disease. This is no joke. And I just want to close with the withdrawal I went through from this disease. I thought I was going to go out of my skin. I was crawling the walls. I begged my sponsor. She said, I promise you, Leslie, it will get better. If I didn't have such a loving, caring sponsor, I never would have been here today. Never, ever. And the love that I have found in this room is amazing. And I, too, am the only woman. And even in New York City, sometimes I go to this meeting with all these guys and then me. And you know what? This is what I have to do because there's so many women who need this program who won't come to the light that this is where the problem is. So I'm grateful. I hope I get to know some of you and um, I'm really happy to be here even though I'm scared. I'm, I'm joyous. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Ben. <coughs> I'm really grateful for what's been shared in this meeting. Especially, thanks, Laurie, and uh, Leslie as well. Um, I experienced pretty much the same 
I can relate a lot to uh, not having any friends. I only have one friend left, and he's he's my best best buddy for life. I think he's an alcoholic and drug addict, and really understands me. He's a sexaholic, pushed me to come here to Nashville. Um, <clears throat> I went for years. From around age 14, I was compulsively masturbating, acting out in various forms, primarily over the internet, um, also in my mother's wardrobe, and uh, in other girls' houses, that sort of thing. Um, also with other girls, and uh, whatever I could, whatever I could, whatever would give me a, <laughs> whatever would intensify an orgasm for me. Um, By the age I was 19, I was sitting under a bridge because I about to kill myself. I'd, I really couldn't do it anymore. I didn't know what to do, and I was so afraid to seek help, to seek therapy. I don't know if I needed therapy. Actually, I found Sexholics Anonymous, I remember. I found a 12, I looked at 12-step programs. I knew they could heal addictions. And <laughs> first thing I read on the Wikipedia uh, page was, uh, I, I saw the word masturbation. I thought, no, it's not me. It was the most ridiculous thing ever because that's all I do. That's all I am, pretty much. Um, I'm powerless over, powerless over myself, my entire self. I've only been sober now two weeks. Um, I feel like this is much stronger than any other, uh, any any other attempted sobriety I've had so far. Um, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, that's. Uh, that's, that's where my addiction's taking me. As far as it goes of the topic of this meeting, um, I, 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 uh, I'll say this, I, I journaled, I, I journaled, because I had no, no friend, anyone to talk to, and I, and I was a fake person. I was never, I couldn't be an authentic person. And I was like the same, I was working my ass off in everything, in sports, in academics, any way to kind of be a people pleaser. Um, I was I was making fake friends just so that my no one would complain or uh, would think that I was abnormal or feel abnormal. Try and get myself to some level of sanity. Um, and uh, so I I I just say I was journaling. I was journaling from around age 15, and I would just I would just write in this book anything about my feelings, what my thoughts were, ideas why my behavior and addiction was so obsessively, you know, trying to figure it all out by myself. And I couldn't do it. And I got to the point where I stacked up 15 books, 15 books full of my own writing after about five years of journaling. And I would hide them in places. I buried them under the ground. I was, I was, and my mom actually told me she found one one time. And uh, she said, I really didn't know what you were writing about. Um, whatever. Um, and, and I, I came to understand I was really hopeless at that point when I was like 19 and just you know almost 20. No, I was I was 19 four months I think, and uh, I I was I couldn't do it by myself anymore. And I realised I got to accept it. I'm powerless, and that's where it kind of changed for me. And I brought a higher power into me. Once I admitted that, automatically a higher power just came into my life and started changing things. Um, but it didn't really. I wasn't really working the steps. I didn't know about a 12-step fellowship. I, I didn't really uh, try to, um, so I carried on acting out until I found SA about a year and a half later, and uh, 
that's my story. Um, that's that's what I understand. I really couldn't do this by myself, and I still try to. I still don't want to make those calls, and I fucking hate it. I tell you, sorry for the language. Sorry. Um, the calls, yeah, I really can't stand them. I really, uh, I hate I hate picking up that phone. But you know what? The prayer has been a big thing for me. Just the courage to take that action, courage just to pick up that call. Um, I'm praying to high power just to give me the courage to do that, and that's been a big uh, big help for me. Uh, in um in keeping so thanks. Oh, my name is Antonio. I'm sexaholic. I'm grateful to be sober today. I've been sober since March 23rd, 2008. But I've been in the SA fellowship since 1990, and. Uh, my story, it's not different from what we've heard here, so I'm not going to go over it. But what I can share with you, it's, it's what it says here. You know, without help, it's too much for us. It's too much for me. And that's why I have such a short period of sobriety, because I was trying to do it all by myself, because my disease has taught me that when I isolate, from the people that I need in my life, it's to go back in that uh, life that I don't want anybody else to know. My uh, realization today is that I need to open myself to what the fellowship gives me. So I have made a commitment to make as much friends as I have in this fellowship because now I have a lot of friends, and Gary and I uh, have met about four years ago in Davenport, Iowa. And uh, I've met friends in many places uh, while I was working. But when I came to the realization that using the phone for the right thing, it's good. I was using the phone for the wrong thing, for acting out. I was calling the people that were my disease. The last time I did a call like that, I got sick in my stomach because it was really, you know, realization that I had taken a sip of poison. So, by all means, we cannot do it by ourselves. I need you guys. I need friends. I need people that I can go and talk about my problem. We have never met before, uh, many of you, but you know, I I know that I have to open. I have to open because my spirit needs to come to the light. I cannot keep it inside. That's all I have. Thank you. Hi, I'm Glenn. I'm a sexaholic, and um, I'm powerless over lust. And um, I'm glad to say that because I don't want to say that. I don't uh, like saying that, but I need to say that. Um, I've, I've been in the program. I first came to my first SA meeting in 1995. Um, I'm three days sober now. So for a long time I couldn't come to meetings, but I've kind of been in and out of the meeting for a long time. But I'm a compulsive relapser. And um, one of the things my sponsor, I got a new sponsor about a, a month ago. And... Uh, one of the things he tells me is a uh, slip. Slip stands for sobriety loses its priority, and um, I know it's got to become the, 
the most important thing in my life. Um, one of the things when I when I act out, he um, he asked me to uh, read about it and talk about it in the meeting and go into in depth on what happened and what I could have done better. And um, this happened a couple of days ago, and I was I felt very humiliated, like I was like wanted to hide underground and hide away and then like that was my perception you know but then like this guy came up to me after me he's like you know the last two times you shared you really helped me a lot because you're opening up and telling all this stuff and it blew me away because like my perception of how I see myself and how other people see me is so different than what the reality may be I may be by humbling myself I'm able to help somebody else and um while I'm while I'm uh working the program um that's a huge motivator for me. I mean, I want to get sober, but also um, the whole point of this is not just to do, get sober for myself, but to bring. A, I mean, if I'm going to get sober, I'm going to bring somebody with me. You know, I'm going to. I'm going to. You know, I'd, that's pretty much the way I am when I'm acting out. If I'm acting out, I'm going to bring people down with me. So I'm, I mean, like if I. <laughs> that's not a good thing to say, but it's the truth. But um, um, when I'm when I'm getting sober, I want to bring people with me. So. Um, for me, that takes honesty. That takes uh, humility. And uh, one of the things he reminds me is, I mean, I, I admit it at first, but he reminds me, you know, you're a proud person. You don't like to admit that you need help. You don't like to call people when you're struggling. Um, you don't like to say exactly what you're going through, you know. And um, I was excited about coming here. Uh, this is my second international convention. But um, kinda, I'm kind of nervous right now. I didn't really want to get up and share, but... I know that um, that's the reason why I needed to share was I didn't want to, and um, um, I'm praying to God for a willingness to um, to surrender. Um, I think that's a lot of my issue is I keep trying to fight this with my willpower, and that's just never going to work. I mean, I'm, I've been so stubborn thinking that somehow that's going to overcome it, but unless I surrender, it's not going to. I'm not going to get through this. Um, one of the things I will say is um, about ninety. Was it ninety two? Ninety. Yeah, ninety one. Um, God has been walking with me since ninety one. That's or at least I became aware of that. The, the living God. My response to Him has been pitiful at times, but I became aware that He was walking with me, and. Um, I want to walk with him now, not just have him walking with me, you know. And um, I know that takes surrender and humility. So um, glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Okay, thank you, everybody, for sharing. We are out of town. Out of town. I'm out of town. I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know what else I'm out of. <laughs> but I appreciate, we appreciate uh, your sharing, and uh, we all do this together. Uh, none of us could do it alone. So if you'd all stand and uh, join, I need to read one other statement, but it will be brief. Anything you ever heard at this uh, meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. If we could close uh, reciting together the third step prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support. 
by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.